Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by C.J. Janovey. C.J. is the Director of Content for KCUR, the NPR affiliate in Kansas City, Missouri. She has previously worked as editor of The Pitch, Kansas City's Alt Weekly, and as an editor at Kansas Reflector, a nonprofit covering state government in Kansas. She's also the author of No Place Like Home, Lessons in Activism from LGBT Kansas. It's a book she describes as a love story. And there's a documentary that serves as a sequel to the book, directed by Kevin Wilmot, who directed Black Klansmen. Hi, CJ. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. So yours is a long storied career. What's your origin story? You know, I, I was trying to remember my origin story. I think that you know, I, I somehow ended up as editor of my high school paper. And that's when I, when I realized, you know, that I could get a lot of positive attention for writing things that people read. And I, I, I think I enjoyed that as a, as a young teenager. And I, there have been periods of time in my life when I've tried to get out of journalism, but I keep ending up back in it. <laughs> Is there anything in your upbringing or heritage that would lend itself to telling stories with the knowledge that your father is a writer? My father is a writer and I have two siblings and one of them is and one of them is a journalist as well and I I honestly don't know they didn't they didn't my parents did not, you know, push us into one career or another. Um they really allowed us to to find our own passions in our own way in life. But I do remember, you know, my mom tells this story of me just being really verbose as a young child and also having a, a strong, a strong sense of justice is how she puts it. And so I think those two factors probably combined for a career path in journalism. When I was looking back at your clips, I saw that they could go back upwards of 30 years, and I saw profiles of Melissa Etheridge. I saw profiles of filmmakers and artists from that time. The people, uh, and I saw more recently, the people preserving the memory of the creator of the Pride flag. Can you summarize some of the highlights of your career up to this point in terms of how they shaped you into who you are? Well, as you know, it's it's been a long time. I, you know, I, sh I think just for for context of those stories that you you mentioned i grew up in lincoln nebraska i went to a couple of years of journalism school at the university of nebraska and then i transferred out to california and finished school in the bay area and then i went to grad school at boston university and i by that point i wanted to be a novelist but grad my 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 workshop creative writing workshop convinced me that I was not a fiction writer and that I had maybe more useful talents as an editor. And I ended up in Kansas City. Basically, it was going to be a pit stop on the way back to California. And this is where I ended up building a career over 30 years. So I, you know, the, those early stories, like it, it, it very quickly, I found a job at, with the alternative paper here in those days it was it came out every two weeks and it eventually became the, the classic alt weekly but it was the early 90s it was sort of the glory days of alternative 
newspapers and Melissa Etheridge, for example, grew up nearby and uh, she was, she was, you know, on her way to becoming a big star by then, but, but uh, certainly it was fair game to interview her and ask her about her Kansas upbringing when she, when she came to town and the, the profile of the pride flag creator is much later. That's from just the last few years. And this is a, that's a, that's a long and sort of sad story. Gilbert Baker grew up in a small town in the Southeast corner of the state and sort of got out as soon as he could and went to San Francisco and went on to create this iconic image that is understood the world over. And for a long time, he never wanted to come back to Kansas, but in, in the, over the last decade or so, his high school friends remembered or realized what a contribution he had made and they began inviting him back and he was set to come back for their 50th anniversary, 50th high school reunion and he died shortly before that. So, you know, those are, those are a little bit of, you know, bookend stories that you noticed, I guess, that, that, that show Kansas having perhaps a larger influence on American culture than it may get credit for. Is that kind of the theme of, of the time that you spent at the pitch? Uh, the time that I spent at the pitch was more, like I said earlier, the, the glory days of the Alt Weekly. And, it, and you know, for folks who, who remember that format of journalism, it was such a fun time. You know, we were, we were, and, and the sort of business model is really important because it, it could, the internet sort of killed the Alt Weekly. There are, there are still many around, but but there, there, it's definitely not the glory days, but there was, you know, the back third of the paper was classifieds and personals and the front of the paper, the cover story was, you know, some in-depth feature or investigation or something. And so you could write really long in-depth pieces. You, you had food reviews and music reviews and you had a lot of personality. We didn't care about, you know, language. We actually, <laughs> we cared about, we cared about really good writing, but we did not care about using profanity when it was warranted. And I have to say, Mark, the, the most fun thing about those days was every Wednesday, the paper would get delivered all over town. And this was before cell phones. So you would go to your local bar or your restaurant down the street on a Wednesday evening, and there'd be a tall stack of pitches in the news rack, and everybody would be excited to see it. And they would pick it up and they would read it while they were standing in line waiting for their order or they would sit down in a booth and they would look at the front page and it would be good art and then they would flip it over and read it from the back to the front because the what everybody cared about the most were those personals and uh, we also ran Dan, Dan Savage's uh, sex advice column so I knew that that was going to happen and it, it did unfailingly. That's how humans behaved with the, <laughs> the weekly paper. I remember it with the village voice, certainly. Right. So yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a little red in the face, but I do. You're, uh, you're to totally busted. Yeah, I do remember. Yeah. Um, all right. So fast forwarding to now, what do you yeah. do at KCUR and how do you shape the vision of the station and its content? Well, as you mentioned, KCUR is an NP NPR affiliate in Kansas City. It's a pretty big newsroom. And so we have we have about 30 reporters 
editors and producers actually in the newsroom, but KCUR is also headquarters for three regional reporting collaborations. So we have something called the Kansas News Service, which is actually for public radio stations that provide news to all of Kansas. We're home to Harvest Public Media, which is a six state collaboration covering rural issues and agriculture in the region. And then we're also home to NPR's Midwest Newsroom, which is public media outlets in four states and they do investigative reporting. So this idea of collaborative news projects, KCR has been a leader in that over the years. And so we just, we have a, we have a very wide reach in the region and nationally because of those, those other elements of our newsroom. So my job there is to really make sure all, all those different, those four newsrooms are, are humming. You know, I, I, I just, I, I like to explain my job as meeting all day with really great journalists and telling them yes, or be careful. That's a, it's a little bit of a boring bureaucratic job in that way, but, um, you know, I've got a really talented group of editors and reporters who are, you know, do, doing day turn stories for our audio newscasts. But a lot of people don't realize that we also have a very robust website with all sorts of digital content that people don't get if they're only listening to the radio. So can you give us an example of what you did yesterday or today or, or anything? Like, I don't want to talk about yesterday. I was, okay. I was, I was literally on Zoom meetings the entire day. All right, so and... the, pick, pick a good day <laughs> that gives us a good a good example of a day in the life of the job. I mean, when you, you know, this is not going to be thrilling, I don't think. But but folks who know newsrooms know that that the upper management folks do spend a lot of time in meetings, and so that even on a good day a big chunk of, of my day will be meetings, but it, there'll be fun meetings talking with the people who are actually working on stories, considering stories, mapping them out, scheduling them, bringing problems to me, you know, whether it's a resource problem of how to allocate reporters time or, you know, where to, where to, where to go for perspective. You know, I, I have been in Kansas city long enough to know that, for example, when we, during our editors meeting this morning, for example, there was a conversation about, it's getting ready to be summer. We have a pretty high homicide, homicide rate in Kansas City. It's gonna be violent. We know that. We know that summer, it gets more violent and it's supposed to be an extra hot summer. And so what our, what our editor was, had been in conversations with her reporter and, what we were all talking about is there's really nothing for young people to do in Kansas City at night when school is out. And both of the editor and the reporter who are working on this have not lived in Kansas City for decades. And so they didn't have the perspective that this is a decades long problem in Kansas City. Whenever there's a particularly violent summer, then City Hall comes out with like a night hoops program or something. and these problems have never been solved by, uh, you know, by the government entities in town. And so 
you know, as sort of an elder at this point who's worked in newsrooms for decades in this town, it was my job to say, let's, let's approach that from a historical perspective. Right, as opposed to something that's just in the now. Right. So on Sunday, it was a Sunday, either this past Sunday or the, the previous Sunday, I was looking at the front page of KCUR, and I see considerable diverse representation. There was a story about Transit City and the LGBTQ community building support. There's a story about an Asian American Pacific Island festival. There's one about Cori Bush introducing a reparations bill, and then another about the end of the Attorney General's trans health care ban in Missouri. As content director, what tone do you want to set with the coverage that's on the, the, the website? Well, I want to reflect our community and Kansas City is a city of about 2 million people, sprawling Midwestern industrial metropolis that's really pretty diverse. And so you see that in in a lot of the, the stories, I hope, every day when you look at the web website. Those, 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 those stories that you mentioned Part of some of some what well, part of what's really great about our newsroom, in addition to those NPR collaborations that I mentioned earlier, we also collaborate with a lot of other nonprofit news outlets in Kansas City. We have a content sharing arrangement, and so some of those stories came from our other media partners. The story of uh, Corey Bush, Corey, Corey Bush represents St. Louis, which is across the state from us, but St. Louis demographically is not unlike Kansas City, and certainly she's a she's a figure of interest on this side of the state line. So, you know, I think we're, you know, and and the, and the, the trans stories that you mentioned, you know, Kansas City is not unique because state legislatures here have been passing a lot of the same bills that have passed elsewhere in the country. Kansas City is. A, unusual though because we the city straddles the state line between Missouri and Kansas and so we're keeping an eye on the Missouri State House in Jefferson City where a lot of anti-trans le- legislation is happening and we're keeping an eye on the Kansas State Capitol in Topeka where same deal so there's been you know there's maybe been double the coverage of those that legislation over this this past session. What makes uh, Missouri particularly distinct, appealing, and challenging to cover? Missouri is particularly appealing, distinct, and challenging to cover because I think in a lot of ways, it's a microcosm of the whole country. So, uh, you know, Kansas City straddling the state line is could, could be like the West Coast, and St. Louis also really is right on the edge of Missouri and Illinois. So that could be the East coast. (laughs) And those are pretty, you know, liberal places, very diverse places. And most of the middle of the state is much more conservative and less demographically diverse. There's a, there's a, you know, sort of college town in, in the middle, but the state itself is also much more economically diverse than it might be stereotyped to be. And there's a, you know, it's the, the, I think industry, it's not straight agriculture 
after the Ozarks is right in the middle of it. So tourism is a pretty big industry in Missouri. And so, but politically it's changed dramatically in the last decade. It used to be as recently as 10 years ago, it was considered a, a, a political swing state and now it is hard right. Um, and Kansas has a similar, but also different set of, of interesting circumstances. It is primarily agricultural. It has a, a it has a pride of being a, a free state. So, you know, living on a border, you hear a lot, you know, Missouri was a slave state, Kansas was a free state. And I think one sees those tensions still today in a lot of the culture war stuff that, that happens. Wow. Is there some coverage that the station has done recently that you're particularly proud of? We won an award from investigative reporters and editors for a podcast that we did called Overlooked, which traces the decades of police corruption in Kansas City, Kansas, which is the sort of, you know, there's can't, people might not know, there's Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas City, Kansas is the much more, much, much poorer and much more, much less white city. The podcast series focused on the accusations against a Kansas City police detective who was alleged to have committed kidnappings and sexual assaults against local black women. The podcast covers the story in great detail and prominently centers the women accusing the officer who is under federal indictment and has pled not guilty. And your role, what was your role in, in this? I was the editor on that podcast and we had, and so Peggy was a reporter along with two reporters, Steve Fockrod and Dan Margulies. And then we had this phenomenal team of producers, uh, two producers, primarily Suzanne Hogan and Mackenzie Martin of the podcast production wing at KCUR. So, and lots of other folks involved along the way, but that was the main team. So I want to segue to your book. You wrote a book, Lessons in Activism from LGBT Kansas, a personal story to cover for you as a member of that community. I watched an hour-long talk that you gave where you talked about the different people that you met for this book to the Kansas Historical Society. There was a woman having a conversation in the car with her grandfather while listening to Melissa Etheridge, a couple that got married, meeting people who surprised them with the way that they were welcomed in a friendly way. There was the transgender woman who would stop people, talk to them, and then ask them if they knew anyone who was trans. And when they said no, she would reveal that she was one. Those are examples of some of the things that are that are spotlighted in your book. What was the experience of making the book and then make the subsequent making of the movie like? This would this, you know, we, we got hours of tape in filming the movie, so I won't I won't I won't try to convey all of it. On yeah. this podcast, but <laughs> you know, I I imagine many of your listeners will remember the 2015 Supreme Court decision that legalized same-sex marriage all across the country. Hopefully, a few of them will also remember the mid 2000s, where gay marriage was a super political issue, and many states around the country passed 
state constitutional amendments banning amendments banning same-sex marriage. So that all happened in like around 2004 and and voters were very those those constitutional amendments passed by 70 and 80%. So that's the percent of of the voting population that was against same-sex marriage. 10 years later by the time the Supreme Court legalized it, most people were the majority of Americans were in favor of same-sex marriage. And so as a journalist, I was watching this change in public opinion happen over that period of a decade. And I knew that it was a really interesting story. And I knew that people in rural places had worked very hard to, to be open and honest about their lives with their loved ones, with their neighbors, with their coworkers. And that had involved a lot of the time, you know, political efforts like ask going to city hall and asking to the asking your city commission to add non-discrimination ordinances so you would be protected from discrimination and a lot of times these were very controversial issues in a you know town of 50,000 people in Kansas that this stirred things up for a long time but in the course of of doing that work a lot of people came out a lot of people built community a lot of people discovered that they had friends and allies that they didn't know about and that's part of what led to the change in public opinion and so i just i just sort of saw an epic yarn with some really interesting people who would make good characters and that's that's why i set out to to write that book I just thought it was a it was a great untold story, you know. When when people think about gay rights, LGBTQ rights in America, they think about places like San Francisco and New York City and L.A. and D.C. But you know, LGBTQ people are everywhere, and Kansas makes a really good place to to is a Kansas is a really rich place to tell that story for two reasons. It was headquarters to the Westboro Baptist Church, which some people might know as the small group of people who have made their brand is to really to go around at public events, most frequently funerals and hold up really offensive signs that say things like God hates fags. They're located, they are headquartered in Topeka, Kansas. But the other reason why Kansas is a great place to tell stories is because everyone in the world thinks they know Kansas because of, you know, the Wizard of Oz. And so there are there are Judy Garland type themes and other other title other, of the book. Other elements of the book that that have particularly particular resonance in the LGBTQ community as well. What is the experience of the writing part of that like for you? Just a lot of a lot of work, you know. I the, the fun part was driving all over the state to different towns and farms and really tiny rural areas and meeting people. And people were so generous with their stories. And a lot of these stories were hard for people. People had experienced painful things and they didn't really enjoy telling me their stories, but they all said, you know, this, I'm telling you my story because I hope no one else has to go through what I went through. And so then that, that I felt a really, 
a strong sense of responsibility to get it right when people had entrusted me in that way. And, you know, then I would, then I would, uh, I did have a, I did have a day job at the time. So I spent mornings and weekends working on it. It's also, you mentioned your creative writing background and the way that, especially as you told the stories in the, the talk that I saw, you, it, there was a lot of character oh, yeah. to those people. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you could see that that was very, it was rich ter territory for someone who likes to write creatively, as I presume you do. Well, that's, that's one of the things that made it so satisfying and just gave me so much momentum. Sure. So you wrote a blog as well that helped promote the book online. There was one item in there that was interesting, the idea that not every Kansas Republican leader hates the LGBTQ community was, was one item. And I'm curious, with that in mind, how have you seen Kansas progress and regress since your book came out? Right after my book came out, there was sort of a burst of progress in 2018. Kansans elected a lesbian Native American woman named Sharice David Davids. They sent her to Congress and they sent two openly gay representatives to the Kansas House of Representatives. And in a in in the city's main population centers, there was a wave of of city councils that passed non-discrimination ordinances. And I think this all was the result of increased activism on the part of of communities in response to the 2016 election of Donald Trump. And that I think, you know, what people told me at that time was that, that that election had really awakened them. And I think we saw that all over the country. Um, people suddenly taking an interest in politics and, you know, that was a very, that 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 wave of activism that led to a lot of progress for LGBTQ people was met with the severe backlash that we're seeing in state legislatures now. So specific to the journalism that you see as it's covering this story in 2023, and you said the severe backlash, what do reporters and editors do well when it comes to covering anti-LGBT legislation and activism, and where could they use some guidance? I think that, you know, first of all, for every working reporter out there who's trying to get this stuff right, you know, con congratulations for staying in journalism and and covering these hard issues. I mean, it, it is it is it's the most stressful time to be a journalist that I've ever seen in the in the long decades that I've been doing it. So so it's it's not easy to to say, you know, you should be doing a better job when you're just trying to get stuff covered. And, and when, when, especially we're, I know what it's like to cover a state house and it's, it's exhausting and all consuming, but I do think that the media in general has failed Americans by not doing a better job of state house coverage. And I don't mean this as any disrespect to the state house reporters who are out there working. I think they're doing as good a job they can, but I don't think you know, I, I think that with shrinking newsrooms and with the general public not inclined really to care about state politics anyway, I mean, I, I, this is what I found in my reporting is, you know, people know who the president is. They probably know, know who their senator is. They probably know who their mayor is. 
But all the elected officials in between that, they know less and less and they care less and less. And this is especially true with state representatives and state senators. I actually did a person on the street column about this where I literally went around and asked people about their state rep and they had no idea who, who it was. And so it's really easy for state legislatures not to be held accountable you know, as a, as a general rule, because people just aren't paying attention. And so then when you have really sort of high decibel, high volume culture war type of activities going on in a state legislature, number one, it, it distracts the public and the media from other things that are happening in that legislature. So that's one thing that I think we need to do better at is not be so susceptible to the loudest voices in the room. And the other thing I think we need to do is to make state government coverage more readable, more understandable, and, and more relevant to average people. And so I think that means a lot of you have to sit through a lot of really boring committee hearings to get the nugget of of activity that actually matters to a lot of people in their day-to-day -day life and i think we're really bad at that for your career 30 plus years of, of journalistic experience how has being a journalist impacted how you view the world well it's depressing <laughs> on the one hand but it's also you know, it's a privilege. This job is a real privilege. And like I said earlier about people entrusting you with their, with their stories and their lives is, I feel is a, a sacred responsibility. And so even in the most depressing times, I, I know that, that I'm, I'm hopefully doing something that helps somebody somewhere. We haven't really talked about how you handled being a journalist, but I've been asking all of the different people that we've had on, how do you manage your mental health as it relates to the job? I am pretty good at compartmentalizing and I, you know, I, th I think that's a, that might not be healthy by therapeutic standards, but I think the journalists who are able to separate themselves and their hearts from the hard, hard news that they have to be covering you know, those of us who can do that probably are less affected. But, you know, I I think all of us at this point, everyone in my newsroom, myself included, we are either taking extra measures to take care of ourselves or, or thinking that we probably should. I have two questions left. One is our advice question. Pick an area in which you feel you're qualified to give advice to aspiring journalists, and what advice would that be? I think if I could give two pieces of advice, you know, one would be just, just you know, figure out better state government coverage. And, <laughs> okay. And, and, and in doing that, I, I, I maybe should have made this point earlier, but, but don't look just at the end result of, you know, who's voting for what bill and what this bill does trace the bill all the way back to its origins, where it came from, who's giving money to what candidates and why, you know, follow that money all the way back to the source of, of whatever you're reporting on. That would be my sort of industry advice. 
to journalists of all ages and to younger, you, you, you did ask about younger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sure. I would just say, man, just, just stay strong. You know, this is a tough job. This is a hard job. And if it's, if it's, if it's, you know, too painful, then, you know, there are, there are other ways to be, to be of use to society. But if you're going to stay in journalism, you, you got to be tough. Gotta be tough. The show is so the show is called the Journalism Salute because we're saluting you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. We've touched on a few topics here: LGBT coverage and state house coverage in particular. Is there a journalist or journalism organization, maybe from one or both of those groups, that you would like to salute for their good work? Well, I think I've already s- tried to salute all all working journalists and. And I want to, you know, especially shout out to those state house reporters. But I, when I, when I think about one journalist who's made the most impact, uh, the in 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 my recent memory, it's Nicole Hannah Jones with the sixteen nineteen project. And I just think, you know, her work made me see the world in a different way, and uh, certainly sparked crucial conversations. And then 1619 Project has a documentary on coming out as well on Hulu. Yes, can I say one? Can I add one more journalist? Go ahead. Randy Schiltz, uh, uh, the 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 famed San Francisco Chronicle reporter who wrote and the band played on and Conduct Unbecoming and the biography of Harvey Milk and died of AIDS. I don't remember what year, but in the in the early eight, Randy Schiltz chronicled the most momentous developments some of in america i'm not just going to say for the lgbtq community but really for america and died way too young and i often wonder what he would be writing about if he were still working cj janovey thank you for taking the time to join us best of luck with your work and your future projects thank you so much for having me it's been an honor thank you for listening to the journalism salute please let us know what you think of the show you can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.